Season two of Impeached is out, and I bet you'll never see the cliffhanger coming. I mean, great show, really suspenseful, really looking forward to season three, The Republicans' Revenge. Must see TV. Well, Britney Spears is in court trying to get control over her financial affairs. Now, I have to admit, I am a bit confused on her case. Why doesn't Britney have control over her own affairs? I mean, she's 39, and I believe it's her first year at 39. She's a fully functioning adult, and that's not just on Hollywood standards. I think even in the Midwest, she'd be able to handle her own stuff. I mean, if she can't control her own affairs simply because she might squander her money, then who can legally handle their own affairs? I do believe sports players, posses everywhere will be watching this case closely. McKenzie and I will unpack all of these stories. Plus, I will try to dodge all things Super Bowl related in this week's debriefing of the law. Well, welcome to this week's debriefing the law. I am Joel Oster. And I'm Mackenzie Smith. And we have a lot to talk about. So, um, Mackenzie, let's just start off with what has the legal community all abuzz? And I'm sure you were caught up in this legal issue as well this week. What I'm talking about is the kitten Zoom appearance. Did you see that that uh, video? This is a huge piece of news, and I'm glad you put this right up front because it does have everyone it's abuzz. It's exactly. very important. Right. <laughs> What, what was that about? I mean, first of all, when, when I saw that, I had no idea that there are actually filter, filters you could put on Zoom to make you appear like whatever creature that you want to appear. Then actually has your mouth move as you speak. Did you know that this technology exists? I had no idea. And it's funny because I um, volunteered to be the presiding judge in our local high school mock trial competition okay. this week. And I wanted, I thought it would be really, you know, cool to have a virtual courtroom background okay. because all right. these high school kids, you know, you, normally they get to go down to the justice center and do, put on their case in an actual courtroom. And they, they didn't get the opportunity to do that this year. It was over zoom. So I wanted to give the look, but okay. I swear to you, Joel, it took me like three and a half hours to figure out. I had to upgrade my Zoom. I had to. I en ended up having to upgrade my entire operating system of my laptop. It was like exhausting to try and get this to work, because and it, it did, and it looked really cool. But I would not be able to put on a filter if you paid me. Mackenzie, let me tell you, help is just around the corner because I know you have <laughs> young kids and pretty soon they're going to be teenagers and then your computer problems are going to be over with. Uh, my IT department now is my oldest son. He has built everything. I'm here in my studio now. He's done a, an incredible job with, with professional camcorders and dual, well, actually, no, I have three, four monitors now right in front of me, uh, soundboard, lighting. My son did it all, built my entire system. Uh, and so, hey, you got to grow your IT department. That's that's how you got to do it. You just got to raise your kids to be uh, proficient in computers. But we, we got to try this. I'm just thinking now that this has kind of opened up uh, as an opportunity, <laughs> what what would you appear? If you were sh had to show up in court uh, and you could be any animal that you wanted to be, what would you be <laughs> as you headed off to court? Well, I would be a unicorn, but I think it would be, that's how I kind of like view myself as very unique and magical, but I think it would be funnier if I went, so my middle name is Wallace, and when I was a young, you know, middle school age, I was a little bit plump. And okay. so kids, kids right. used, it's a true story. Kids used to make fun of me and they would call me walrus. And it just kind of, no way they did. It you guys send pics now because you, <laughs> I, I, I know you as someone who runs marathons. Yeah. I can't imagine it was a young person being plump, but no. Well, well, why do you think I run marathons now? Cause I have this huge chip on my shoulder about it. That's what happens. Like anything that you get bullied for when you're a kid, then you grow up to like overachieve. Fascinating. It's true. Is, it's true. No, this is a true story. I, I grew up in my high school years thinking I was grossly overweight. That was, that was my mindset that I was just this big, huge person, always struggled with his weight. And that, that was my mindset. I go back now, look at my high school pictures, and I'm thinking, 
where are the pictures where I was overweight? I, I was skinny back then under right? every measure of that term. So apparently your mindset as a, as a teenage boy, and I'm sure as a girl as well, just plays tricks on you and you assume you look way different than you actually do. Uh, but um, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, Absolutely. It's so true. But the name kind of stuck and now it's, you know, my my oldest friends like kind of use it as a term of endearment. Like they'll call me okay. Wally or Walrus. Walt. So I think if I, sh- if I showed up in court as a walrus, like that would probably be more appropriate than, see, now my self-image has reversed. Like back yes. then I didn't look like a walrus and I, or I saw myself as one and now I see myself as a unicorn, but it would be funnier yes. if I appeared as a walrus. So oh, yeah. either one of those. Because now it would be ironic. It's like, yes. oh, a walrus, <laughs> yeah, the marathon runner, okay. Yeah, you, you couldn't actually look like a walrus and then show up as a, as a walrus, but um, I don't know, maybe maybe you could in that regard. Well, uh, I, I don't know. I'm thinking I have a, a mediation here on Monday. I, I'm going to go ahead and practice with the different Zoom technologies. Maybe a, a puppy dog so they can't see me coming. Definitely not a pit bull. You don't want to be a pit bull during a mediation. That, that's not going to do you any favors. Or a favors. snake. Yeah, there are some that yeah. you just can't show up as. No, no snakes. That would be <laughs> great, though. If I could put a filter on the opposing side. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> then it would be a snake. Oh, I like that. That is a great idea. All yeah, right, you should well. show up as a bald eagle, like a you know symbol of justice and... You know, patriotism. Like, no one can argue with a bald eagle. Mackenzie, you are brilliant. I love that idea. Patriotic. I'm going to have the American flag draped around me. (laughs) Yes, uh, that is the way to go. Speaking of patriotism and all things uh, Americana... Uh, this has been a really bad week. I, I um, uh, I'm kind of disappointed you didn't look in, uh, in, in on me this week. Make sure I'm doing okay after that horrible, horrible travesty that occurred last Sunday. I am referring to the Super Bowl. Did, did you watch the Super Bowl? Um, I please. I know you said you're gonna fifth. sleep through it. I did. Well, so this will tie. We're, we're gonna come full circle here, I think. But I actually. So I will be radically honest. I did not watch the Super Bowl. I oh. laid in bed eating snacks and watching the Britney Spears documentary while my okay. family was downstairs watching the Super You know, I just had a day that was like I needed to engage in some self-care and be alone in my bed. We got um, for Christmas, someone gave us one of those projectors that you can project okay. um onto the wall, like onto right. a wall from your streaming device or whatever. So now the wall of my bedroom is like this huge movie screen. <laughs> right, it's right. so great. I mean, I'm never going to read a novel again, I think, because it just it's great. Like after a tough week, you can lay in bed and watch a movie and it's projected on your wall. It's wonderful. So that's what I did. I'm sorry. I went back and, and watched highlights and I did no, you know, no. watch the national anthem. No, and there, that, there but were I don't no think highlights. I much. Stop yeah, that. There, yeah. there were no. No highlights to that game. That was an ugly game. I'm just saying how brilliant you are and wise to avoid that game. I sure (laughs) wish I had. This is on a serious note. I got to learn to watch sporting events with less negative emotion because I just get too worked up. I got to move around. I just get mad. I start Nazarene cursing at the TV. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it is an ugly sight. And uh, my sons have picked up on it and they starting to do the same thing. And uh, yeah, I got to find a way to watch the sporting events. I just take it personally. It was a horrible game. And uh, from the Chiefs standpoint, now I, I will just make this one comment. I do think that uh, we were distracted. What happened two days before the Super Bowl, Andy Reid's son, Britt Reid, got into an auto accident and alcohol was involved. And the uh, the person that was hit, I believe there were two young kids in that car. And I just checked the, recently and one of those kids is still, I think, in a coma or at least in, the, in intensive care at the hospital. So it's a serious accident. And it's Andy Reid's son, and, and alcohol was involved. I just know that was a distraction. Now, they all said the right stuff, like, oh, it's not going to be a distraction. Andy Reid is a professional. But then you look at how we played, and it looked like we were distracted. I mean, Andy Reid made one of the biggest, worst, most horrendous coaching decisions I've ever seen by a, by a coach. At least that's kind of my you know uh, biased take right now. So I'm kind of in the aftermath of, of the Super Bowl. But it was right before halftime. Tom Brady had the ball with like a minute and 10 seconds left, and Andy Reid decided, I'm going to call timeouts so that way Tom Brady can make sure he has a full allotment of time to score before halftime. 
like, Andy, what are you doing? If Tom Brady's on the other side, I know you think you're going to call timeout because you might get the ball back for, for, Pat, for Patrick Mahomes, but Tom Brady's on the other side. You're not getting the ball back. Sure <laughs> enough, that did not happen, and Tom Brady scored a touchdown, and everyone, everyone saw that coming. So I just had to assume, and, and the team did look distracted, but you know what? I'm going to move on. Uh, gig, I, I'm going through counseling right now as well, but nonetheless. No, I mean, it's really sad. And, you know, I'm from Philly, so I know the whole history of Andy and his other son that he lost. And it's just, yes. it's really, I mean, obviously for those young children and their families who were hit, it's just horrific. And, you know, it's horrific for Andy too. And those of us here who really love him and it's, it's tough to watch. I mean, that's, it's just really devastating. And I don't see how that couldn't be a distraction. I mean, as a parent, can you imagine trying to go do your job in the biggest, you know, most public forum possible two days after your child, you know, did that and was involved in that? I mean, it's just, and it's here's why horrible it's, to think about. Here's why it's even a bigger distraction because Britt Reed was the linebackers coach for the Kansas City Chiefs. So, in a in a way, Andy Reed is his boss, knows the public backlash, knows what is coming for his son, and sure enough, as we speak right now, Britt Reed is no longer a an employee of the Kansas City Chiefs. They did not renew his contract, uh, and so all this is going on. You know that's going to be distracting to Andy Reed, and so uh, I, I I think that played a much much bigger role than what everyone is, is letting on. But yeah. you know what? Uh, life is more important than football, though some of us might say football is life, and I definitely <laughs> act like that at times. All right, well, speaking of real-life stuff, uh, uh, this last week, now I, I'm going to assume, McKenzie, uh, that you, like many people, and like myself, during this pandemic, we have looked for different shows to binge-watch, right? Have oh, you done sure. That? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, what is your favorite show to, to binge-watch? Mm, that's a really good question. I mean, for me personally, like I have a, my guilty pleasure is reality TV as we've discussed, okay. but I think during, you know, during the pandemic, my husband and I have gone back and kind of watched, sh- rewatched shows that one of us had seen and the other one hadn't and kind of shared that with each other. Right. So like, I think my favorite one is we, I had seen The Sopranos and he had never ah, seen it. So we went back and watched the show. whole series. And yeah, yes. and it's from so long ago. So it had been, t- you know, 20 years or whatever since I watched it. And I really enjoyed it just as much the second time around. I, I got to share it with him. Yeah, he really yes. enjoyed it. So that was fun. That was back in the early days of the so, pandemic. It seems so long ago, but we really enjoyed that. So here's what I look for. When I'm looking for a new show, and I think I've seen them all right now, every single show that was ever produced, because <laughs> I've, I, I've really been bored. But um, here's what I look for. I look for season two. Because when I know there's been multiple seasons, then I can binge watch it. I know it's going to – first of all, I know there's a lot of shows to watch. And if you, if they renewed it for a second season, it's got to be somewhat quality, right? right. If they're going to do it for true. multiple seasons. So I usually look at the very beginning. If it just says one season – I'm not going to waste my time, uh, but if there's multiple seasons, then I'm going to give it a game, which brings me to this last week, season two of a show that might be uh, worthy of you binge watching aired. I don't know if, did you catch it? It's called Impeached. Did, did you watch that um that reality TV show? Now it's season two. <laughs> I watched the highlights. <laughs> exactly. You watched the highlights. And, uh, well, first of all, it is interesting to note that. Or lowlights. I mean, you know, depending right. on how you view it. Right. Uh, it is interesting to note that even though we are in the season two, not all the cast members made it to season two. Uh, you know, like Alan Dershowitz and Jay Sekulow, Trump's lawyers. They decided they did not want to be typecasted with a second season. They didn't sign up for a second season. And Trump was, yeah, basically the only carryover from season one is President Donald Trump. And that's not a good thing, I suppose, to continually being a um, the central figure in an impeached series. But nonetheless, it was uh, obviously impeachment was the big uh, talk, a big legal issue this past week. Uh, and any, um, any thoughts as to this week? of Now, let me also set the stage for our listeners. Today, as you and I are talking, it is Saturday morning. So we've had a week of trial uh, at the impeachment, if you if you want to call it a trial, and um, and they they say they're going to vote later today. So by the time this podcast airs on Monday, 
this probably is going to be over with. So whatever you and I say, either we're going to be proven to be geniuses, we called it correctly, <laughs> or we're going to be idiots uh, because we're going to say, oh, look, the vote's going to turn out this way, and then it's going to be something totally uh, different. So any, any thoughts from this past week's uh, trial? Uh, I mean, well, it's it was very quick. And as you just said, the closing arguments, I guess, are going to be today and possibly even a vote. So it was a very quick trial. Right. You know, my, my bottom line takeaway, I guess, is that I still feel the same way I felt going into the trial, that the way the article of impeachment was drafted, and it, you know, it may be because there weren't enough votes to draft it another way. Like, I don't know the inner workings of what the House did here, but the way the article was drafted allowed the defense to kind of portray the narrative that the whole issue here was whether any specific words that the former president uttered at the rally on January 6th were the proximate cause of this riot. And to me, that is way too narrow uh, a cause of action or a claim or whatever we're going to call it, an indictment, I guess. Like, to me, it would be impeachable or the the indictment, the article of impeachment should have focused on the whole two-month Build up and the impeachable offense should have been, you know, undermining the results of a democratic election and then, you know, the peaceful transfer of power, which, you know, the House managers, the prosecution team did focus on in their case in chief during the trial right, this right. week. But if you go to the language of the actual article of impeachment, you know, the defense then just turned that right around and only focused on, you know, whether there was a proximate cause there. And I think yes. that is going to allow Republican senators to vote against impeachment and say, you know, we're we're voting against this because we find that these words were not the proximate cause. These people were planning to storm the Capitol in any event, and therefore— And there was some evidence of that this week, that this plan of storming the Capitol was, you know, weeks in the—if in the, not months in the making. So it wasn't like they went there that day, heard President Trump say the things that he said, and then determined— Let's go storm the Capitol. That was already in their mind, and there is no evidence that Trump actually knew that. And I don't know why he would have actually known that what their plans were. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you're right. That, that might have been an error. It would have been interesting if their main charge. And by the way, what, what the main charge is, it is important because that this is all a political game here. It, it's it's right. about political points. And so the main charge is what the media is going to be repeating. It's what they're going to be holding up on a mantle saying this is what you got to prove. If it had been Trump uh, without any evidence, you know, undermined the results of the election uh, and he, uh, by his public statements, really undermined the the, um, I'm uh, struggling for words here, but, you know, the, the uh, integrity of the election electoral system. I mean, he had no basis for it. He never came forward with evidence. And even the Republicans and conservatives on Fox News were screaming, give us the evidence we want it. We want to run with it on our program. You know, um, uh, Tucker Carlson was, was saying that. And they, they didn't come forward with it. And so that, that definitely proved a problematic. Well, can we start off, though, and get past this notion that this was actually a trial? Right. I mean, <laughs> I know you and I are lawyers. So when we say trial, that means something, Right. And here, that was not a trial. It looked nothing like a trial. Let me just throw some ideas by you to see what you are, what, you, what your thoughts are. All right, number one, the presiding judge in, in this trial was actually a member of the jury. Now, have you ever seen that where the judge who's sitting up there is also a member of the jury panel? So that doesn't happen. But again, in this case, there was actually like no, I mean, typically during a real trial, the main function of the presiding judge is to admit or exclude evidence. And there was no, there were no witnesses in this trial. So, I mean, 
whatever. Yeah, it didn't look anything like a real trial. All right, secondly here, the jury. Now, I assume you have um, impaneled juries. Uh, you, you've done for a dire where juries have been impaneled. You've been involved with that process, right? You be, you're a prosecutor. I'm just assuming that you've been I involved have, with juries. I have, and you're, you're betraying, you know, the fact that you're from the Midwest because you said you called it, what did you call it? Vordire? Vordire. See, we call on the East Coast we call it Vordier. Vordier. Ah, Vordier. Yes. Yes. We I tried a case a couple years ago where we were local counsel for a firm from Mobile, Alabama, and it was a Philadelphia jury, and we had to go over practice, you know, you know, how to say certain things because we're like, the jury's not gonna understand what you're talking about. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I just did a class yesterday, trials of the century, and the first um, trial of the century that I talked about was uh, Socrates' trial, which is back in ancient Greece, and there are so many names involved. I butchered all of them. I just I cannot <laughs> say words. I just butcher right through them. I just plow right through them. Hope no one noticed whatever I was saying. But nonetheless, yeah, Vodir, Vodire, Plaza, Plaza, whatever. Whatever. Uh, and so, um, so, so th- here's the deal about that. The uh, the jury here, I know you would never allow for a jury like this to be impaneled. I mean, have you, have you ever even thought of a concept of a jury being as biased as this jury was? First of all, these every single jury, so the jury here is going to be the actual senators, right? They're the ones that are going to be casting their votes. Uh, every single one has a political agenda uh, involved. In fact, their, their very jobs are, are uh, in online here because of the political matters and the political agendas. So there's bias there, but even more, they were the actual victims of the underlying crime, the storming of the Capitol, right? This would be like if someone broke into my house and someone was put on trial for breaking into my house, you allowing the the jury members to be me and my entire family. I mean, that would never happen, right? Correct. I but hey, you know what? It's a trial, and so that's that's the jury. And so I think that because of that, you definitely got it. Was a weird setup with evidence. My last thought here that I wanted to play on the how this is not a trial was the actual video montage. Did you hear about that video montage? Well, there were there were several, right, on both sides, yeah. I think. Yeah, well, they just took out little snippets and clips, and they they found every single time that Trump ever said something that might seem bad, put it together and put in a little video montage and ran it over and over and over. Left out all kinds of things like context, like Trump also said, hey, we're going to peacefully go over and make our voices heard. They left that part out. Again, No, in no trial that I had ever been involved with or heard about uh, would that be allowed, that kind of biased presentation of the evidence. And so you as a lawyer, any uh, lasting thoughts here on this actually resembling a trial? Yeah, I mean, it's actually really frustrating and probably the emotions that you experience watching professional sports, like I experience watching something like this because I feel like, you know, most people, their perception of what a trial is, you know, has is based on things like this and like other highly publicized proceedings. And it's very frustrating because... This looks nothing like an actual trial. I mean, clearly, and you bring up a good point, like with the video montages, that would never be allowed. I mean, there's, you know, the, the, yeah, there's rules of completion and you get to present if someone, if one side presents a snippet of something, then the other side gets to present the rest of it to give the jury context. Like that's actually a rule of evidence. There are other rules of evidence, like the defense team in this case presented a video montage of Democrats making, like speaking in you know, bellicose rhetoric in the past. And it's like, that's not even inadmissible under rule 403. That's inadmissible under rule 401. Like it's completely unrelated to the issues that are, you know, at play in this trial, like under no circumstances would any judge ever allow that in at all. And for our non-lawyer listeners, 401, I believe, and you're going to correct me if I'm wrong here, is relevance. And so you're saying, like, this isn't even relevant evidence. It doesn't even get to the other factors of whether or not it's admissible. It's not even relevant to the issues at hand. And so is that right? That's exactly right. Like you can't, 
you, you know, you can't just say if I, if I get arrested for a DUI and I'm at trial and the prosecution gets up and says, okay, well, she had four drinks in her system and right, then she right, got in right. her car and drove the car. I don't get on the witness stand and say, oh my God, three years ago, this other guy had six drinks in his system. That was even <laughs> right. worse. Like, that's not, that's totally irrelevant. Like, what are you talking about? That has nothing to do with whether I'm guilty of this right. DUI. I mean, both can be true. Neither can be true, but one has no bearing on the other. And that's kind of what happened here. So it's Great very point. frustrating to see, you know, and I understand, like, I understand that this is not a legal proceeding. This is a political proceeding, but yes. it's portrayed political as theater. a legal proceeding. Yeah, exactly. It's political theater. And essentially each side was trying to, you know, construct and weave a narrative that can be used in the future by members of that party. And it's just, I mean, that's what we're doing here. I did think, I do think there's a very interesting, um, and for me, enraging aspect of this trial. And that was the First Amendment argument that okay. the defense made. And I, like, I would like to get your thoughts because I'm not, I, I'm not a First Amendment lawyer, but to me, to hear the defense argue that, Whatever the president said, including and not just at the rally, but including, you know, following the election that there was fraud and all of these statements were protected by the First Amendment was very interesting to me because, number one, you know, we're not in a criminal proceeding here. Not that the First Amendment only applies to criminal proceedings, but right. this is, again, a political proceeding. But number two, I, I liked the rebuttal argument, which was, well, that can't possibly be true because if a president, you know, in office got up and said, like, I hate America, I hope that Canada invades us and kills right. everyone, like, wouldn't that be, that's not protect, I mean, it's not protected in terms oh, of absolutely. impeachment, that's protected right? Speech. That's, 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 what you just said, hey, I hate America, I hope Canada comes over and bombs the living whatever out of us, that is 100% protected speech, and you could not do anything about that. But you could still impeach the president, right? Or no? Uh, if, if the president said that, uh, that's actually a really good question. That again, the, the impeachment is a political process. It's not an actual trial like we know that term uh, trials to, to be. And so, if the president says something like that, then yeah, you're right. That's actually a really good point. That would be something you you would probably would impeach the president for. That would, that would sound like it's treason. Yeah, you can't like throw throw the president in jail for that under any right. criminal statute. But like. I think it's fair enough to say that you could remove him from, like, no one would want that person to be the president anymore. <laughs> right. But here's I'm, the problem so with what you just said. So it's an interesting question to me. Right. Now, you actually brought up a really good point. But let me, uh, give, me give a distinction. What you just, the example you gave was very explicit. I hate America. I hope Canada comes in and bombs us. Or at least that, that was my take on what you said. Something very egregious. But that's not what happened here. Uh, what happened here was a politician standing in front of a group saying things that really excited the group. And, and like, but he did say, look, we're going to peacefully protest. We're going to make our voices heard. And yeah, he said things like, we're going to fight like hell. But politicians say those things all of the time. And, uh, and all politicians use exciting rhetoric. They want to get the crowds energized and motivated. And so the First Amendment, the First Amendment issue comes in to, if this actually is criminal, then this is going to endanger all future campaign to stump speeches. And so why would this be different? Okay, let's analyze that because it, it could be different if the president had some reason to know he was dealing with an angry mob. But first, before you jump to the conclusion of, well, obviously it was because what happened, what ensued, you didn't know that going into it. I mean, every time a politician speaks to a group, it's a potential angry mob, right? I mean, they are politicians. They are they are zealous, zealous. They're attending it. They're 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 fervent advocates for the cause. So you just can't use the fact that it resulted in that, especially in this case when there's evidence now that they were planning this, even you know weeks in advance. They were planning on storming the Capitol. Now, if the president knew about that. Absolutely, that's a different situation. Now he, he had reason to know that his words would would be the trigger that would then cause him to go storm the Capitol. But outside of that information, it's just an excited politician trying to rally up the the, the, the troops, and that's where the First Amendment comes into play. 
Yeah, and I think that that kind of ties into why this trial, quote unquote, was too myopic, because I think if you look back since November 4th, you know, there are statements that were knowingly false. And when you're the president and you say the Democrats were in a conspiracy to steal this election and they had truckfuls of ballots being delivered in the middle of the night and right. they're switching votes and we need to stop them from stealing. I mean, the whole thing was stop the steal, stop them from stealing our country right. because the Chinese communist army is going to come in and take over. Like that's to me, I don't see how the First Amendment, you know, obviously protects that from criminal prosecution. But like, this is a job, right? Like, I can't go into a job interview or I can't go into my place of work and say, like, you know, I hate all of our clients. I hope we lose all these cases. You know, obviously, I would get fired. I mean, right, you right. can't keep a job. You don't have a First Amendment right to, to say whatever you want, however damaging to the institution to which you owe a fiduciary duty and still keep your job. Like you don't have, you're not entitled right. to do that. So I think it's just, it's a really interesting question. And I think, you know, over the past several years, this, oh, First Amendment, I have a, I have a right to free speech. Like it's been thrown around so casually to where people kind of portray it as I have a right to say anything whenever I want. And here's a third without any negative consequences. And that's where it's like, no, you can say almost anything, almost anywhere. We're a very, we have a very strong First Amendment, right, but right. it's but here, not without consequence. Here is where the dangerous precedent that I think could be set because they have now said you can impeach former presidents. And by the way, uh, I disagree with that. I, I've analyzed the Constitution. I've analyzed the arguments. And I don't think the Constitution allows for former officials uh, to be impeached. There's another process for that. It could be criminal. You can go into court, charge someone with a crime, which by the way, people said, oh, if, the, if, if you can't impeach a former president, then that means the last month in office, they have free reign to do whatever they want. Uh, not so fast. If he commits a crime, he's going to have to face the, uh, he'll face criminal charges afterwards. But nonetheless, um, I, I do think it's very dangerous to impeach a former uh, official because it's just going to get way too political. And especially if you're going to, if you're going to impeach someone because of what they said and what they should have known might have been the consequences. A couple of examples were thrown out this past week by the defense here. So I'll just throw them out there for you to consider. Bernie Sanders made some statements about Republicans wanting to kill people with their health care votes. And that, that's pretty inflammatory uh, language there from, from Bernie Sanders. And uh, it's kind of hard to believe that someone who sits there with his mittens all trying to stay warm can say something like that. But, hey, he, he's saying Republicans want to kill other people. And by the way, that's not atypical. A lot of politicians speak in hyperbole saying, look, they're wanting to kill you with their vote. Well, Someone took him seriously and went to the ballpark where these senators were playing, these congressmen were playing a baseball, softball game, and shot some of them up. Uh, and so, should Bernie Sanders now be impeached from the Senate? Because he should have known when he uses the words, they're trying to kill you, that someone might take that and then run with that information and then actually try to kill other people. That actually happened right there. Should Bernie Sanders be impeached? What about Barack Obama? He made some statements, and after he made those statements, some crazy person went and killed, shot and killed five Dallas police officers. Now, people could say Barack Obama, Barack Obama should have known that what he said would inflame a reaction, incite a reaction, and indeed it did, and five people were, were, were ended up uh, dead because of it. And so... Is that now how we're going to play this game that you should have known that what you said might incite people to bad acts? And keep in mind, if that is the standard and this is all political, once the other side belongs to the, you know, the other party, or once Congress belongs to the other party, they're going to impeach you for past acts. Any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, look, I, there's to me, it, there's an opportunity here to set a clear precedent, like whether or not you can impeach a prior, a former president, like I do think, I mean, there was that opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal of, I can't, the name escapes me at the moment, but the conservative 
lawyer who said you can. And I think there are arguments on both sides. And, you know, obviously the Senate voted on that and it came down one way. But I think there is an opportunity here for and I wish it were Republicans to come out and say, you know, there is a difference here. And what you know, what Bernie Sanders or Barack Obama or Maxine Waters or like all of these people said, the difference is they were not defaming, intentionally defaming public officials who are in the process of doing their job, which happened to be directly related to a presidential election. Like when you have a presidential candidate defaming the people who are running and, you know, tabulating votes in that president's own election. Like it is, I would call that a highly aggravating factor. And all of these whataboutism statements of this person said this and this person said that, they're not defamatory statements. First, I mean, and we've talked about like the other context. They weren't said to an angry mob. They were said in an interview and they were said months and years prior. But they resulted in bad things. Well, yeah, I mean... I would argue not proximately, but, you know, well, that's the issue of proximate cause because it, in in my opinion, and I would argue that those were not foreseeable results. And when you are speaking to an angry mob of armed protesters who are holding up nooses and saying, hang Mike Pence, like that, it's at least, you know, highly probative circumstantial evidence that you would, should suspect that something might happen. But that's, you know, we can argue. But I think, you know, you hear all these statements, well, this person said this in the past and this person said that. But to me, the clear bright line rule would be you can't intentionally and knowingly defame public officials who are in the process of doing their job in a democratically elected or a democratic election. Like that's what happened here. And we can, we can define that narrowly. You know, you don't have to make the rule, oh, every time a president says something and then someone commits a criminal act, you know, the president's liable. Like, of course that shouldn't be the rule. Like, of course that can't possibly be because there's crazy people who are going to do crazy things all the time. But, you know, when it's when you're defaming someone with no evidence, not a shred of evidence, and you're saying, you know, that that specific attorneys general and secretaries of state are doing things that they're not doing, like that's wrong. It's so wrong. We- and I think that there's a frustration on the left of like the lack. There's just radio silence of people coming out and saying like we need to there needs to be a consequence. I mean, you've heard people right. say this is wrong, but there has to be a consequence, I think, is what the frustration is. And it seems like well, I think that that should be true across the board. I think these politicians are way too uh, loose with their lips and condemning the other side and speaking in hyperbole. And and they act like they're being serious. When, when Bernie Sanders says, look, the Republicans are trying to kill you, why? There, there should be consequence for you saying that you know that's not right, you know that's not true, you're trying to incite a reaction, and I just wish people would, would tone it down just a bit. Now, I do consider myself somewhat of a neutral person here because I'm on both sides. Uh, I, I am, yes, I am a conservative, but I also wanted Trump out of office and I, I thought he, he's doing very much uh, damage to the Republican party and he does play fast and loose with the truth. So I'm kind of like in both camps here. And so I, I, to me, the politics is fascinating because I think there's a, there's a, a broad, there's a little bit of support amongst the conservatives. They want Trump out. They want okay. this trial. They want to make sure the consequence that you're just speaking about is he can never win another election. And so whether it's damaging him through what is coming out uh, without trying to uh, alienate the base, um, but they, they want him out. Now, there are some conservatives, some Republicans that uh, he is the savior of the Republican Party. They worship him. I see that as well. And then you have the Democrats. They know he's not going to be convicted. So what is their point here? Is it to be divisive? No. It's, again, it's, it's a political game here. They want to score some points, maybe make the Republicans go on record. I don't really know how the politics plays into all this, but I do know that actually is the game that's being played. It's, they're not. So let, let's actually end with this. The vote's going to be today, probably. What is your prediction on the vote? So there's no way they're 
going to get 17 senators to okay. vote to convict. I, I just don't don't see that being possible. I agree with that one as well. I think we uh, did the over-under last week, and I'm going to have to re- review that before the actual vote is reported for next week's podcast to see if we actually were accurate. Do you remember what your prediction was last week? Wait, I... I, did I might the over have said under two or three, it. and you said four, and I went okay. under. Okay, so you went under, and I went over, and we set the line right around two to three. To uh, I'll, I'll, I'll double-check on that and see which one of us ends up right and owes the other one to something. All right. Well, speaking of... Uh, actually, I don't even know how to do a transition here, but uh, the real issue this week, the legal news, which really... You maybe got me a little bit uh, inflamed here and, and excited with this last story, but this next story really has me mad because I don't get this next story. I'm talking about Britney Spears and uh, the New York Times. It, I believe comes that came out with this new uh, framing Britney piece about uh, her life and how a conservatorship has been placed over her financial empire and, and, and also her personal uh, body. I don't get conservatorship. And so to me, as a, as a red-blooded American, this makes me mad how an adult, and I believe she's 39 years old right now, doesn't have a say or doesn't have control over her, her, her finances, her, her well-being. Can you explain to me what is going on with Britney Spears? Well, that's a loaded question, but I will try. So Britney, as we all know, was a very you know famous pop star in the early 2000s, and right. she was raking in millions and millions and millions of dollars from concert huge. tours and yeah performances and appearances and sponsorships, and she just was making millions. And she was very young at the time, and you know I think the fame kind of was overwhelming, understandably. And around 2007, I believe, she suffered, you know, a very public, unfortunately, right. breakdown. And at that Cut time... Her, shaved her hair. She shaved her hair. And, you know, th- I think there was... She was in the middle of a custody dispute of her two very young sons at the time. And, uh, you know, that can be extremely emotional. And I think anyone who has been through divorce and, you know, any kind of issues surrounding that can understand how that would be highly emotionally charged. And most of us are lucky that we don't have to live that out in the public eye. And I I can't imagine what that must be like with paparazzi hounding you everywhere you go. And even when you're at your, your darkest hour. So she did have a breakdown. And at that time, her father petitioned the Los Angeles County Superior Court to impose a conservatorship of the person and of the estate upon her. And that was granted. What does that mean? You said person and estate. Right. Is there a difference there? Yes. So there's a conservatorship is a legal mechanism where when a person, and it's typically an elderly person, but obviously it can be anyone, when a person is substantially unable to manage their affairs, um, a conservator can be appointed and that person basically takes the legal ability away from the conservatee. So, so here's, when a que- here's a question I have that I don't understand here, and, and that is, do celebrities have less rights? I mean, what is the standard? Because the standard of someone like myself and the things that I deal with, right, my life is not that complicated. Anyone can live this life. I couldn't live Britney Spears' life. I mean, maybe I could. But you, you, know, you know what I'm saying? In order for her to manage her affairs, that requires a lot more sophistication and, and knowledge and wisdom than someone managing the affairs of a person who works at Walmart. Uh, not to bag on people who work at Walmart, but you get the idea of what I'm saying. It's a little bit more complicated life that, that, that Britney Spears lives. And so what is the standard subjective to your particular position and skill level? So I think it would probably be phrased in that, like the the language of most conservatorship statutes in most states talks about whether the person is uh, subject to or vulnerable to fraud or undue influence. So I don't think there's a higher standard in terms of like, right, do you understand what like a revocable trust is? And right. do you understand you know, all these legal mechanisms that might be in place for someone of a high net worth? Um, I don't think there's, you know, a, a judge would typically say, well, you're not smart enough to understand collateralized debt obligations. Therefore, I'm imposing a conservator. But someone who's 
you know, very young and very impressionable and has certain characteristics might be more subject to fraud and undue influence, especially if that has, you know, actually played out in in real time. So someone could go in and say, you know, people are are defrauding this person left and right and and stealing their money. And someone needs to come in and stop this because there's going to be nothing left for her and the children. I mean, one can make the argument that every 19, 20, 21 year old superstar is subject to fraud and undue influence. I mean, I don't. I'm thinking of every single sports athlete out there. I mean, they used to be. They are drafted at 18, 19 years of age, and the millions and millions of dollars are thrusted upon them, and all kinds of agents and vultures are are coming in. Uh, how would that not always be the case for someone who is 18, 19, 20, 21? No, absolutely. I mean, I think it is the case, and I guess you know when you're talking about. A court proceeding, the the question is like, where is the line, right? Like, you know, you can make millions and millions of dollars when you're 18 years old and go out and buy Corvettes and Ferraris right. and houses, and that's your choice. Like, you you're are America. legally an adult and you're an American and you're raking it in and you want to, you know, easy come, easy go. Like that, that is absolutely your choice. So I think a judge in these in these cases, there's no jury. Like the judge is the fact finder, and wow. there are thresholds. Just one judge. One judge, and it's usually the the burden of proof is usually clear and convincing evidence. So it is a slightly heightened um, standard of proof. But right, the judge, the the question for the judge would be, you know, where is the line? Is this person substantially unable to manage their own affairs? And I think, you know, and I almost hesitate to raise this because of what people's reactions might be, but I really do believe that there's still, and and I'm not speaking to, I don't know the judge in this case. We don't know all the facts in this case. Like these records are typically sealed. So there might be a lot of evidence that the judge has heard that we have no idea. Like we don't know what we don't know. So I'm not, I don't want to pass judgment on what a judge is is doing because I don't know what that that judge has seen or you know what's gone on in the past 13 years in terms of these proceedings but I do think you know that when you have especially a young woman there's a kind of a double standard in terms of well you do see all these young athletes and most of them are men and you know it's kind of like at least in the court of public opinion right. there's just kind of like an eye rolling like well boys will be boys but then right, when it right. comes to a young woman it's like ooh she needs help you know and it it kind of rubs me the wrong way to to see that play out and it's almost like well there might be a, a different standard that's applied to someone because there've been plenty of young male celebrities who have had very public I mean oh, Justin yeah. Bieber comes to mind Kanye West well he's not that young but he comes to mind like there are plenty of celebrities who you know everything kind of gets to them and there might be a mental health aspect there and you know they you do. don't know but uh you don't see the same treatment at, at least right. in the court of public opinion I'm thinking of a young Mike Tyson. Tyson or Allen Iverson. I mean, these star athletes that it was self-proclaimed, they have these posse that just hang all around them. Now, I've never had a posse, but I'm <laughs> guessing that posse is looking to kind of be a vulture and, and just kind of sponge off of your, your money. And, you do and you... have a posse because you have kids. That's your posse. <laughs> no, I have a posse no. <laughs> No, my posse are my dogs. I have two dogs that they follow me around. They they at least get excited when I come home. So at least yeah. I got the dogs. So I guess that is my posse. But um, here's another problem that I have. So I want to see if you can speak to this. Why I just I get so mad about this whole scenario. We I'll, I'll speak for myself. I don't want to speak for you. I have seen lawyers just be masterful in the courtroom, and they can twist the facts like no one else can. I mean, and, and judges, well, all the judge could do is rule based upon the evidence that is presented. And when a lawyer knows how to twist the facts like that, what is a judge supposed to do? And so these are all high-priced lawyers. And, and these lawyers, there is a financial incentive for them to keep the case ongoing, and especially these conservators, there's a financial interest for them and for the lawyers, and lawyers charge a lot of money. It seems to me that this could be driven by a desire to make uh, make a bunch of money by the conservators and by the lawyers behind the conservators. Any, any thoughts as to this? Is there a lot of money involved here? Oh, absolutely, and I think it should definitely be pointed out that Brittany in this situation is, I mean, upon 
information and belief is paying for not only her own attorneys, but her conservators and their attorneys like this, the estate pays for all of this. And I think, you know, it, it does happen a lot where, and typically, um, conservators or people acting as guardians get paid sometimes a percentage of the estate. So that the more money they're managing, the more they're making, um, which, you know, it it makes sense to have them grow the estate as much as possible if they're managing it. Like that's, I mean, financial advisors make a percent all the time. So I, I don't find that inherently unethical or anything, but you know, it does. But that's when we hire those people to manage our affairs, not when it's thrusted upon you by someone else. Uh, And so, um, all right. Now, they had this conservatorship over over Britney's uh, affairs. How long has it been going on? 13 years. Wow, 13 years. And so what? why is this in the news right now? Uh, In other words, when can someone, in this case, Britney, get out from this? Can't they just say, I want out? Why can't they just say that? Well, I think I think they can and they're you know the court would have to hold hearings and make a determination and I believe that the burden would be on Brittany to show that it's no longer, you know, the restrictions that have been imposed okay. are no longer necessary. And there are, you know, it's a sliding scale. It's not just, oh, okay, there's a conservator that has total control over everything or nothing. There are limited conservatorships, you know, that might be, I need a conservator for, to manage this, you know, this issue, but in terms of my day-to-day affairs and buying groceries, you know, I can do that or, you know, something like that. That's possible. Um, there's also voluntary conservatorships where someone says, like, I'm not, I'm substantially unable to manage my affairs and I want a conservator. So that can happen. And I did look into the, very briefly, looked into the conservatorship statute in California because, of okay. course, I did. And there's actually... That's why you're here. <laughs> there's actually, like, a specific section in California, and I don't know if this is at issue in this case. I have no idea um, the specifics of this case, but there is actually like a mental health conservatorship in California. And the, you know, the interesting thing, and it's, it's a high standard to prove that a mental health conservator is necessary, but those only last for one year. Okay, and then one they, year, good. They, one year, and then they dissolve naturally unless, you know, you can petition to continue it, but you would have the burden as a conservator to show this is still necessary because of an ongoing okay. severe mental health issue. But it doesn't seem like that is happening here. It seems like here the default is, well, this conservatorship is going to continue in perpetuity unless Brittany is able to come forward and say, I don't want this and it's not necessary and here's why. Okay, so early on when you started talking about this, you mentioned uh, a personal uh, conservatorship and a financial, and I think I kind of glossed over, or we went right to the financial. Uh, I want to go back to the, the personal one. Now, what does that mean if someone has a conservatorship over my person? What kind of decisions are they making for me? Like medical care. I mean, it's basically a lot of people have like a healthcare power of attorney that you voluntarily sign, right? And it says like, if I'm incapacitated, this person can make all of my decisions. Well, it's basically that, but like all the time. Yeah. Wow. That is, I, I can't imagine in America, an adult, and we've all seen Britney Spears in public. She was on, I think, American Idol a couple of years ago, and she did a great job. She's fully functioning. I mean, it's not like she's crazy. And I know you're thinking, well, you're not a, a, a psychiatrist. You can't make that diagnosis. I guess, but if she's crazy, a lot of us are also crazy. And so does that mean you can't? You know, function. Someone else is going to control my decisions in in the United States of America. I just don't get that. All right, now I'm going to ask you, Mackenzie, to play lawyer, uh, and so I'm going to I'm going to push your your lawyer skills here just a bit. The first one question I'm going to ask for you is is somewhat easy. All right, you you have seen this uh, th- this documentary over Britney Spears' life, right? The, the framing yes. Britney. Okay, what was most appalling to you about that? The documentary. The mo- the most appalling thing about the like that I saw in the entire documentary is and this is hearsay and if I'm applying my rules of evidence to life, you know, it's take it with a grain of salt. We but, just talk about the impeachment. No, we don't need rules of evidence. All right. Yeah, right, that's true. But was when I guess her business manager or former business manager said, I think it was her who said it that 
or maybe it was someone who, anyway, someone who encountered Britney, like, at the beginning of her career when she was just right. starting to get big, and the dad uh, showed up with her to, to an audition or something or other, and he said, my daughter's going to be so rich, she's going to buy me a boat. And then he kind of disappeared for, like, 10 years and popped okay. back in when she was having her breakdown. That, to me, like, if I were the judge... Thinking right. about who who am I going to appoint as the conservator here? I would want to know that. Wow, that is interesting. It also makes me a little bit nervous about the things that I have said to my kids. I call my kids uh, <laughs> 401k because uh, they're my 401k, but maybe that's not the best thing to, to nickname my kids. Um, oh, yeah, that, that obviously <laughs> there is a financial incentive here by the debt. And I'm also thinking of Serena Williams uh, and, and Venus Williams. They had an issue with their dad being too burdensome on their their affairs, uh, their tennis careers. All right, now I want you to put on your, your lawyer hat, and I asked you what was the most appalling. Now I want you to look at this through the lens of the other side. Why? What is their best argument And giving them credit for being maybe well-intentioned? Is there an argument to be made for the other side that they are doing something that is, is good? It's just being misrepresented by the media? Well, I think, I mean, it depends on what's, still going on, if anything. But if you go back to the beginning, it does seem, and again, we don't know all the facts. We probably don't know even close to all the facts, but it does seem like there was undue influence going on. Like Brittany had some kind of boyfriend or handler or whatever, who was, seems like he was really misguiding her and maybe even drugging her and mooching off of her to put it lightly. So I, it's not that there were never valid concerns about, you know, what was going on and her susceptibility to being taken advantage of. And look, I mean, I can understand that that would be a real concern and family members watching this play out. I mean, you know, when my grandmother got very old and couldn't really became very impressionable. There were some people who were like, oh, you need a new roof on your house or whatever. And it was, and she'd just write the check, right? And it was very frustrating as a family member to watch even that small example. But I'm sure there were so many huge examples that as a parent, like watching your child be susceptible to this would be very upsetting. So, you know, I mean, it's not that... It's not that there was nothing and they just came out of the blue and, you know, took right. her life away. Because usually in life, there are two sides of the story. And so even though I know we just watched this documentary that presented one side of the story, sometimes there also maybe is another side. Now, maybe we still think that other side is way on the bottom on the scale uh, of things that I, we care about. And for me, I think Britney Spears as an adult should be allowed to take care of her own affairs and make those decisions and just have those decisions be the law because it's, it's her own life. She's 39 years of age. And I assume this is her first year being 39. So I'm not sure that's just one of those fake 39 deals where you're on your fifth year. She actually is 39. She should be able to make her own decisions. Uh, but I guess we will follow that case as it, as it goes along. All right. right and I do think there was a co-conservator appointed just this week. So it seems like, you know, maybe the maybe this is an example of why, you know, it's good to have investigative journalism and why it's good right. to kind of make things go viral and get it out there because it does. You know, and again, I don't know if the judge was aware of this or this was going to happen anyway. I have no idea. But it does seem like when things kind of come into the public consciousness, there can be, you know, people kind of can stop and say like, well, this doesn't seem right. And maybe you should look further into it. So, you know, maybe it's going in the right direction. All right. Now I forgot to mention to the listeners that, um, you actually have a lot of experience with conservatorship law. You used to, to practice in this area. So you got a lot of uh, information. What is your experience in conservatorship law? Uh, well, I was a fiduciary litigator for a brief time, okay. and I, you know, I'll tell you, I, I think it's kind of probably like being a divorce lawyer. Like it's very emotionally taxing okay. because, you know, we dealt. I dealt with a lot of um, trusts and estates and will contests, and right. um, it, it's really at the end of the day, it's like family members versus family oh, members, I would and hate so. That. Yes. I used to tell, like when I'd be speaking with a client for the first time and they'd kind of be telling me like, here's the background of what's going on and what we need help with. You know, I would always say like, these issues are not issues that have come up 
within the past year. These are right. issues that have been simmering and festering for sometimes 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and, and you'd hear people say, well, you know, I was never the favorite. And right, right. it's like a 60-year-old person who's telling you, like, they still have these resentments and emotions about things that have been happening. And we all know how volatile and unsettling family dynamics can be. It's so emotional. So I think anytime the law <laughs> is involved in, you know, these these highly charged family situations, it's just, it's very taxing. It's very exhausting. And um, yeah, so that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> you know, it just, it just dawned on me, we should end each podcast with some kind of non- advice, legal advice. I say non-advice because as lawyers, we're not giving you legal advice. If you actually want legal advice, give us a call in the particular state that we are licensed in and then we'll actually give you legal advice that applies to your situation. But that aside, that disclaimer aside, let's give some advice to, to people that might help them along the way. Just some general ideas to be concerned about. And when it comes to conservatorship, I, I wanted some legal advice here. And so here's my, my issue. Uh, and I agree with you 100%. I've had people come to us when it comes to um, wills, and they, they want to. They, they they say something like this: "You know what? My family, they they all love one another. They're looking after each other's interests. They're not going to fight. They're going to be in agreement. So we'll just let them decide that issue later on." It's like, no. If you actually love your your children, you make the call and make the decision, so they don't fight about it later on. Because it's when you leave it open that that creates a dissension and opportunities for fights. So just don't do it. So in that vein, I, I just have a question for you: If you have a situation where you have, like, say, two conservators uh, over over uh, a, a matter, and they disagree with one another, like, let's say you you um you you do this uh, power of attorney for someone for your health care and you put two of them as 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 um I don't know the right word for trustees uh, in this uh, document and they disagree what happens well it depends on the language of the document right like that first of all i would not put an even number of people okay <laughs> you know preferably you that wouldn't be an issue but you know someone might have two children and feel very strongly that they don't want to, you know, quote unquote, leave somebody out. Um, just well, let's for just say me, like, like I would want to be left out, but who knows? Right, right. But yeah, you'd have to provide for how, you know, who's the tiebreaker and how that works. So let's just say you put this example. Um, uh, I did a will for someone and I said, hey, who do you want to be the guardian of your kids? Oh, I want uh, Jim and Sue. I just made those names off the top of my head. I hope I, this is not actually a client that's named Jim and Sue. But nonetheless, <laughs> I want Jim and Sue because they're my my brother and my sister-in-law. I want them to have, be legal guardians of my, my kid. And my problem with that is, well, what if Jim and Sue have a little bit of a tiff and get divorced? Now what's going to be the scenario? Uh, and if you create two of them, what if they don't agree with each other as to a certain matter, especially when it comes to money? Should you just not pick one over the other to be the legal guardian uh, for your children? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's it's a fair question. And these are the types of issues that people should think about. And it, unfortunately, when you're talking about these kinds of you know, legal documents that are going to govern unknowable future situations, you kind of do have to sit around and think about what if, what if, what if, what if. And it's, you know, even just going through that process is exhausting. And you don't, you know, what if I die this way? And what if I right. die with this person? And, you know, you don't, no one wants to sit around and think about these things. But I do agree with you that it's important to to do it, you know, periodically, like once every five years, sit, sit down and think, okay, well, how is this going to play out? Because it does save the family a lot of strife if the better you plan, you know, the better off they're going okay. to be. So. so let's say you have another scenario. Let's say you have an aging parent. Uh, and so you want to create a, a um, durable power of attorney for healthcare matters uh, and also maybe for financial matters. And there's two kids and, and uh, or maybe even three kids. Well, let's just say two kids. And you don't want to pick which one actually has the, the actual durable power of attorney. So you put both of them on it. And you might have a good reason why they both have a durable power of attorney. Maybe you want them to have flexibility so both of them can call the uh, office and get financial information or, or whatever. Uh, 
Is that a good practice or is that a bad practice to give two durable power of attorneys out concerning the same matter? Well, you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to have two separate power of attorneys that have a different that each have a different designee, right? Because then both people could come running into the hospital saying I'm the power of attorney and right. what would happen you know, if that, that happened? Right. So it it does happen and I don't I mean you'd have to there are situations and I have I've not been involved in any of these situations but there are situations where at the ho- like the hospital lawyers get involved and have to go to court. I mean the the famous case of Terry Shivo comes to mind, right? right? When that woman who was in a I think a um, uh, vegetative state for years and years and years. And there were so many court proceedings and it was very public of, you know, the husband wanted one thing and the parents wanted another thing and there was no advanced directive. And, you know, no one really knew what the right thing to do was. And it does that it does happen. So I think, you know, ideally the clearest thing to do is to have one person who you designate ahead of time. And, you know, if that person is, cannot be reached or is incapacitated or cannot, you know, or resigns or whatever, then you have a second and then you have a third, you know, you kind of build in these redundancies, but yeah, having an even number or conflicting powers, like that's, that's never good. Interesting. Well, we will leave on that note for our non-legal legal advice of the day. Um, (laughs) Go ahead and take care of matters early and make sure it's a, Odd number of people who are in charge, so there is someone to break the tie. All right. And if you spend all your money when you're alive, then you don't have to worry about it. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Mackenzie, for this week. And, um, yeah, for those of us who don't have money, no one's fighting to be my conservator. There's really nothing to conserve. But but nonetheless, (laughs) have a great week, Mackenzie, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for spreading the good word about us. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Triplicity Marketing for our technical and computer support. 